Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. A verdict reached in the contempt of Congress trial of former Trump advisor Steve Bannon. We have the latest from outside the courtroom. A congressman attacked on stage while campaigning in New York. The lawmakers uninjured, a relief, but what's happened to the attacker is drawing outrage. Two alleged drug traffickers released from jail without paying any bail. Both promised to show up for their future court date. Both promises broken. The sheriff responds. As Texas and Arizona continue to bus illegal immigrants across the country, Democratic mayors are speaking up, calling for federal help as their homeless shelters are filling up. Man accused of raping and impregnating a 10-year-old now indicted. Yet, the alleged mother of the victim defends the man. A new report attempts to shed light on this case. Some Republicans ask Google not to limit pregnancy centers from search results on abortion clinics. If Google fails to comply, would it be violating antitrust law? President Biden is still isolating and recovering today after testing positive for COVID-19. The White House press secretary gave an update on his condition. Here she is earlier today reading a letter from the president's physician. President Biden completed his first full day of Paxlovid last night. His symptoms have improved. He did mount a temperature yesterday evening to 99.4 degrees Fahrenheit which responded favorably to Tylenol. His temperature has remained normal since then. His symptoms remain characterized as runny nose and fatigue with an occasional non-productive, now loose cough. His voice is deeper this morning. His pulse, blood pressure, respiratory rate, and oxygen saturation remain entirely normal on room air. The president is tolerating treatment well. We will continue Paxlovid as planned. Biden tested positive for COVID on Thursday. He's fully vaccinated and twice boosted. The White House has identified 17 close contacts of President Biden. Jean-Pierre said the group members have all been informed, but none have tested positive. Meanwhile, the president appeared at a White House event virtually today. He said, quote, I feel much better than I sound. Former Trump advisor Steve Bannon today was found guilty of contempt of Congress. What's his reaction and what happens next? NTD's Iris Tao is outside the courtroom with more. A Washington jury has found former White House strategist Steve Bannon guilty of contempt of Congress. That for Bannon's refusal to comply with the subpoena from the January 6th committee demanding documents and testimony. And now the verdict has come out. Let's hear what Mr. Bannon and his lawyer have to say about it. Here today, but we're not going to lose this war, right? I stand with Trump and the Constitution, and I will never back off that, ever. And Bannon's lawyer vowing that they will appeal and win. Have you ever in another case seen a judge six times say in the case that he thinks the standard uh, for willfulness is wrong? You will see this case reversed on appeal. The Justice Department, meanwhile, touting the Friday conviction in a statement, writing that Bannon's refusal to testify was, quote, deliberate, and now a jury has found that he must pay the consequences. 
But Bannon's lawyer told NTD that Bannon may still want to come forward. And is Mr. Bannon still planning to testify at a January 6th hearing? Well, we'll have to see now. Now they've just determined that there was no, there's no longer any subpoena in effect. So there's really nothing for them to enforce. He may want to voluntarily testify. His lawyer said that Bannon wanted to testify but knew he would be barred from telling the true facts. And this has been in blast the January 6th panel while leaving the courthouse. Show trial committee, the J6 committee, didn't have the guts to come down here and testify in open that court. Bannon's sentencing is slated for October 21st, and his lawyer told us they would file an appeal of today's conviction on that exact same day. Bannon is facing sentences ranging from 60 days to two years in prison. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. Attacked on stage while campaigning. That's what happened to Republican Congressman Lee Zeldin. He's okay now, no injuries, but is the attacker in jail? The answer to that is drawing some outrage. Congressman Lee Zeldin represents New York's first congressional district, and he's also New York's Republican gubernatorial nominee. He was campaigning in upstate New York on Thursday when a man walked onto the stage and attacked him with a sharp object. People jumped in between Zeldin and the attacker, trying to prevent serious injury. Moments before the attack, Zeldin talked about safety in New York and that some are leaving the state for Florida where they feel safer. New York Governor Kathy Hochul will face Congressman Zeldin in this November's gubernatorial election. She has in the past characterized him as a far-right extremist who is dangerous for New York. NTD reached out to the governor's office to ask about her previous statements, but didn't hear back before broadcast. The suspected attacker who stormed the stage was 43-year-old David Jacobonis from Fairport, New York. He was charged with a felony, but released from custody just hours later. Critics are blaming New York's so-called soft-on-crime policies for that, especially bail reform. Zeldin himself took to Facebook after the attack while the suspect was still in custody. Zeldin at the time said law enforcement was on the scene within minutes. The attacker, though, will likely be instantly released under New York's soft-on-crime laws. In a statement sent to NTD, a spokesperson for Zeldin said it's terrible that the suspect was let go just hours after trying to stab someone. Reporting by Arian Pazdar, NTD News. And over in California, two men who were busted with 150,000 fentanyl pills were released without having to pay bail. Both agreed to show up for court, but did they? NTD's Jason Perry has that story. On June 24th, California Highway Patrol officers pulled over Jose Zendejas, pictured on the left, and Benito Madrigal on the right. During a search of their vehicle, officers recovered 150,000 fentanyl pills, worth an estimated $750,000. According to Fox News, less than 24 hours after their arrest, both suspects were released without paying any bail and on their own recognizance, meaning that they promised to show up to their future court date. And on Thursday, both alleged drug traffickers didn't show up to their own trial. Tulare County Sheriff Mike Boudreaux told Fox News that he couldn't believe the suspects were released in the first place. This assessment was done behind the scenes, basically, without ever contacting me as the sheriff or even asking me what I believe the risk to our public safety would be. Warrants have now been issued for their arrest, and the defendants face 14 years in state prison if convicted on all counts against them. Jason Perry, NTD News. 
And it appears that some Democratic mayors are feeling the strain of illegal immigrants being bused to their cities. They're calling on help from the federal government as homeless shelters are filling up. NTD's Jason Perry again with this story. Texas Governor Greg Abbott first started offering volunteer bus rides to D.C. for illegal immigrants in April of this year. Abbott explained, by busing migrants to Washington, D.C., the Biden administration will be able to more immediately meet the needs of the people they are allowing to cross our border. Texas should not have to bear the burden of the Biden administration's failure to secure our border. New York City Mayor Eric Adams said they've gotten close to 2,500 migrants in the last six to seven weeks. He called for federal assistance and added this. We need some of those states that have been giving people one-way tickets. We need them to understand that uh, this must be a partnership in this country to deal with those who are coming here seeking uh, refuge or asylum. Uh, you know, New York is going to do its share, but uh, we have an overburdened um, uh, shelter system now. According to the Washington Post, there are about four to five buses of illegal immigrants arriving daily to D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser had this to say on CBS's Face the Nation about migrants being bused to the nation's capital. But I fear that they're being uh, tricked into nationwide um, bus trips when their final destinations are places all over the United States of America. I spoke with Todd Benzman, who is a senior fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies. He's also the author of America's Covert Border War. He said he doesn't think these are the only cities currently dealing with overcrowded shelters, and that hearing from these two mayors is just the tip of the iceberg. Benzman explained what the illegal immigration numbers could look like by the end of President Biden's term. Uh, once they drop Title 42, the pandemic expulsion policy for good, uh, it's very reasonable to predict that between the gotaways and the number that they're actually officially admitting could be 7 million people, a city the size of New York. We reached out to the White House for comment, but we didn't hear back before airtime. Jason Perry, NTD News. Was a rape suspect abusing his partner's 10-year-old daughter? Some think that's what's happened in Ohio. The latest update to the story of a pregnant girl who caught the nation's attention after getting an abortion in Indiana. Gerson Fuentes confessed to having sexual contact with the 10-year-old girl. Telemundo later interviewed a woman who claimed to be the girl's mother. She defended the suspect, saying everything people said about him were lies. Now, according to a new report by townhall.com, the rape suspect is in a romantic relationship with the mother of the 10-year-old girl. NTD can't confirm whether that's true. The illegal immigrant was indicted on two counts of rape on Thursday. In June, Democrat lawmakers asked Google to limit pregnancy center results in searches, saying they deceived women seeking abortions. Now, the Associated Press reports that Republicans have asked Google not to honor that request. Is Google violating antitrust law? NTD's Arlene Richards reports. Democrat lawmakers have been taking measures to get ahead of the abortion debate since before the Supreme Court officially overturned Roe v. Wade. A week before the published decision, Democrat Congress members said in a letter to Google that misleading search results deceived abortion seekers and sent them to pro-life pregnancy centers. 
Now, 17 Republican attorneys general have sent their own letter. The Associated Press reports the AGs warned Google that if it censors pregnancy centers, it could be violating antitrust laws. But does not showing pregnancy centers in abortion clinic searches really violate antitrust laws? In a Heritage Foundation article titled A Conservative Guide to the Antitrust and Big Tech Debate, the authors caution that antitrust laws address competition, not big tech issues. We reached out to Google for comment, but we didn't hear back before broadcast time. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Coming up, using arrest warrants to board flights in the U.S. That's what some illegal immigrants are doing. A senator grilled the TSA chief on the issue. And while the United States is the number one destination for the world's immigrants by far, a growing number of young Americans are dissatisfied with their country. What's going on? Find out more when we come back. The January 6th committee yesterday argued that former President Trump deliberately ignored calls from staff to denounce violence. The panel attempted to lay out a minute-by-minute -minute account of Trump's actions during the Capitol breach. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. The January 6th panel Thursday detailed what members said was Trump's failure to act between the end of his speech at a rally urging supporters to go to the Capitol and the release of a video telling people to go home. But you have to go home now. We have to have peace. President Trump did not fail to act during the 187 minutes between leaving the ellipse and telling the mob to go home. He chose not to act. Representative Elaine Luria said the hearing was principally about what happened inside the White House that afternoon. What you will learn is that President Trump sat in his dining room and watched the attack on television while his senior most staff, closest advisors and family members begged him to do what is expected of any American president. The panel's chairman, Representative Benny Thompson, said Trump's daughter Ivanka and son Don Jr. were among those who pleaded with him to act. Witnesses told the committee President Trump didn't call any law enforcement or national security officials as the events unfolded. The panel used the testimony to make the case that Trump's refusal to intervene amounted to a dereliction of duty. However, prior to the rally, Trump did offer 10,000 National Guard troops, which House Speaker Nancy Pelosi refused. The hearing featured footage of White House security staff worrying about then-Vice President Mike Pence's safety as protesters came within feet of his office. If we lose uh, any more time, we may have, we may lose the ability to, to leave. They are on the second floor, moving in now. The panel also showed previously unseen footage of Trump rehearsing a speech the day after January 6th, where he took out a part about the election being over. This election is now over. Congress has certified the results. I don't want to say the election's over, I just want to say Congress has certified the results without saying the election's over. Okay. The panel's vice chair, Liz Cheney, says the committee will return with hearings in September. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Illegal immigrants are using arrest warrants to board flights in the U.S. The TSA chief confirmed that it is happening and that it's been going on for quite some time. Here are the details. 
The head of the Transportation Security Administration, or TSA, says that under 1,000 illegal immigrants were allowed to present civil immigration enforcement documents, like arrest warrants, to board commercial U.S. flights this calendar year. TSA Administrator David Pekuski was renominated by President Joe Biden for a second five-year term. At his confirmation hearing on Thursday, Republican Senator Josh Hawley asked how the TSA policy complies with U.S. laws that criminalize improper entry into the country. The senator also wanted to know why federal security directors aren't called in such a case. They, they will bring in the federal security director if needed. Well, why would that person not be needed if, if you have someone who's an illegal immigrant? Right. So, so we aren't looking at whether a person is legal or illegal in the country. Our, our function is to make sure that... Why not? Because our role is to make sure that uh, people that might pose a risk to transportation um, that's significant enough to either require enhanced screening or to not allow them to fly, um, that the proper... So your position is someone who is known to have violated the laws of the United States does, does not thereby need enhanced screening? You're not concerned about this person as a security threat? Uh, sir, there are people every day that violate the laws of the United States that fly. Uh, we look for things that are related to transportation security. Senator Hawley also said he had not received the response from Pekuski to a letter he sent the TSA chief in January. In the letter, Hawley said that the TSA policy subverts the rule of law and should be rescinded immediately. In his words, the point of an arrest warrant is for the police to actively seek out and apprehend criminals. This dystopian inversion exceeds the point of absurdity, where radical open border policies attempt to accomplish the very opposite of DHS's core mission apprehending those who cross our borders illegally. Pekuski said he would respond to the letter by July 22nd. A TSA official told the Epic Times back in January that the TSA had that policy since its creation after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. The official said he believed TSA agents didn't have the authority to arrest illegal aliens. Meanwhile, ICE, when asked whether non-ICE law enforcement agents could enforce the arrest warrants, refused to answer the question. Moving on to China. Shanghai's Semiconductor Manufacturing International Corporation may have just made a microchip that's two generations ahead of what it's currently capable of making, which are 14 nanometer chips. That's according to technology analysis website Tech Insights. The Shanghai-based manufacturer is shipping Bitcoin mining semiconductors built using 7 nanometer technology. This is the most advanced technology product that Tech Insights has seen from SMIC. What's also surprising about this is that the company was able to do this despite U.S. sanctions. Tech Insights says Bitcoin mining semiconductors may be the stepping stone for SMIC to a true 7 nanometer process. And here to talk to NTD's Don Ma about SMIC is Stephen Ezel. He's with the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. Stephen, thanks for coming on. So Shanghai's SMIC is apparently shipping Bitcoin mining semiconductors that are using 7 nanometer technology. Now, this is very surprising to me. Does it look like SMIC is on their way to making real 7 nanometer chips? It does uh, appear to be the case. Uh, and that's a surprise to many analysts of the industry. SMIC has made uh, significant advances in semiconductor process node design. Uh, in fact, their previous leading edge capacity, which was their N plus one design system, actually already offered performance at the 14 nanometer level that was comparable to TSMC's at the seven nanometer level. And now, as you've just said, it appears that they're going to be able to start sustained mass production of 7NM capable chips with a new process node called N plus 2, which we're already seeing in, in, in Bitcoin and, and uh, other applications. 
Now, this is very surprising. Definitely something's unexpected. You know, 7 nanometer processes two generations ahead of SMIC's 14 nanometer technology. How do they do this? What's going on here, Stephen? Well, there are certainly a number of factors at play. I mean, we have to understand in this discussion that with semiconductors, we're truly dealing with the world's most important industry, uh, apart from biotechnology amidst the pandemic, at least. Um, but as you know, semiconductors are vital to every defense application from drones to hypersonic missiles. Uh, they're driving the global digital economy, everything from artificial intelligence to wind turbines or electric vehicles or solar panels. So China is, of course, hungry uh, to have a company at the leading global edge of this industry. And to get there, uh, the Chinese government, of course, has supported SMIC and other companies like YMTC with massive industrial subsidies. Uh, they've looked the other way while these firms have engaged in massive intellectual property theft uh, from their global peers. Uh, they have very active programs to try to poach talent from uh, companies such as TSMC. So uh, what we're seeing is the Chinese government make a, a full court press, if you will, uh, to to uh, um, get their companies as close uh, as they can to the global cutting edge. And that's one reason they've been able to move so fast. Now, you mentioned a couple of points, and I'd like to ask a question about that. So when the U.S. sanctioned SMIC, Washington was concerned about Beijing using U.S. technology to modernize its military, right? So then would China's military benefit from SMIC capable of making 7 nanometer chips? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, initially, these these technologies may, you know, find their way into commercial applications like Bitcoin mining. But as you know, every single weapons platform that exists in the world today has a brain. And that's the brain is a semiconductor. And the more effective semiconductors that a nation has domestically available is going to find their way into defense applications. Uh, absolutely. And yes, will this leap ultimately advanced PRC military capacity absolutely now we talked about you know the energy sector the military I wonder does the phone sector smartphone sector would Huawei benefit from this uh, you know this technology absolutely uh, although it appears that uh, Huawei is trying to uh, reinvigorate, uh, reanimate an internal chip design uh, group they have uh, to uh, kind of design their own chips for Huawei phones. But of course, having a foundry, having the outsourced fabrication capacity with SMIC uh, able to you know be at a seven nanometer level higher would definitely be of, of benefit to Huawei and other uh, Chinese cell phone makers. Okay. Stephen Izell, Vice President for Global Innovation Policy at ITIF. Thanks again for coming. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And back to the United States of America, the most powerful nation in the world, economically and militarily. It's also the most popular destination for the world's migrants, by far. And yet, a growing number of young Americans are dissatisfied with their country. Why is that? And is there a solution? They educate young Americans who are ignorant of America's history, indifferent to liberty, and estranged from their country. According to a 2021 survey by the Pew Research Center, 
42% of Americans between the ages of 18 and 29 say other countries are better than the U.S. In contrast, at least 70% of Americans at ages 30 and up view the U.S. as either the greatest country or one of the greatest countries in the world. David Randall is the executive director of Civics Alliance, a coalition of organizations and citizens dedicated to preserving and improving civics education in the U.S. He says almost all of America's K-12 schools have stopped teaching about Western civilization and the ideals of liberty, and he believes this is the root cause of anti-American sentiment among youth. We need restored social studies instruction centered on freedom to educate a new generation of Americans to secure the blessings of liberty. In June, Civics Alliance launched American Birthright, a model for K-12 social studies standards. Its goal is to teach students to become effective citizens and combat social studies standards that focus on identity politics. American Birthright teaches students to identify the ideals, institutions, and individual examples of human liberty. Uh, you know, individualism, Republican self-government, religious freedom, you know, and then once identified to assess you know, to the extent to which civilizations have fulfilled these ideals and describe how the evolution of these ideals in different times and places has contributed to the formation of modern American ideals. Douglas Norlander, a veteran social studies teacher at Tartan High School in Minnesota, is a supporter of American Birthright Initiative. He said many social studies and history classes are not giving students the full picture. I always ask the question, U.S. history compared to what? Like what was happening in China? What was happening in the Arab world or in India? Um, a lot of kids when they leave high school have a very negative view of American history. The kids almost think, well, America was the only country that had slavery or the only country that had segregation. And there's this lack of a global perspective, I think, that we need to bring back into the um, curriculum where the kids have this nuanced and broad perspective. Nicole Neely, founder of Parents Defending Education, a nonprofit that's part of Civics Alliance, said that parents across the country have become upset with politicized teachings in schools in recent years. We have seen over the past year or two years, parents rising up, parents becoming deeply, deeply unhappy about what has been taking place in American schools. Um, people are mad about the race and gender theory lessons that are being taught in school um, that teach children to view each other through the lens of identity politics and pitting each other against, uh, against their peers. And why I'm so grateful for the, the launch of the American Birthright Project, because it is a concrete and positive thing that parents can bring to the table. Jenna Robinson is head of the public policy organization that promotes excellence in higher education. She's part of the steering committee of the American Birthright Project. As we all know, the current standards are failing to create effective citizens. And right now, we are fighting against various balderized versions of history, civics, and geography in our schools. It's important for all students to get a sound footing in history and civics, regardless of whether they go to college. This is our American heritage. It's all of our birthright, not just students uh, who go on to post-secondary education, and it should be taught to everyone. The creation of the American birthright model seems to be part of a larger trend. As of right now, seven states have banned the teachings of critical race theory. They include Arkansas, Florida, Idaho, Iowa, New Hampshire, Oklahoma, and Tennessee. Florida has also passed the Stop Woke Act to regulate how schools and businesses address race and gender. Reporting by Angela Moyne, NTD News. 
And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, an intense heat wave with seemingly no end in sight. Americans across the country are struggling to stay cool as multiple states report triple-digit temperatures. And the monarch butterflies fill the North American woodlands and skies every migration season. But now the iconic pollinators may be threatened with extinction. That and more here on NTD News. Millions in the U.S. are experiencing a heat wave that's expected to last through the weekend. Some states are seeing triple-digit temperatures as forecasters warn about the dangers of dehydration and exposure. Meanwhile, Americans turn to outdoor fountains, swimming pools, and lots of ice cream to keep cool. Here are the details. The National Weather Service Prediction Center said on Twitter on Wednesday that heat advisories are in effect in 28 states, affecting over 100 million people. Record-breaking temperatures are expected in the northeast over the coming weekend and that above-average temperatures are expected in much of the country. Children ran through a fountain at a community park in Boston, a familiar scene across the U.S. as people tried to stay cool. Meanwhile, temperatures hit 95 degrees Fahrenheit in Wincote, Pennsylvania yesterday. This is hot. This is brutal. Brutal. You talking about all week is going to be like this? I'm going to be out here for a little bit with the dog, and I am going in. I cannot deal with it. This is just too much. That's as southeast Texas saw temperatures ranging from 105 to 110 degrees Fahrenheit. Several cities issued heat emergencies and opened cooling centers in public buildings and urged people to take advantage of public pools. Oh, man. It just feels nice and relaxing to get in the cool water. This heat is crazy seen a lot of people pass out with this heat. While taking a plunge in an outdoor pool may sound like a good idea in this heat, one aquatics director says the pool water isn't much cooler than the air. I can tell you this water temperature is probably somewhere around uh, 90 degrees, uh, maybe a little bit warmer. Uh, what people don't realize is you actually sweat even in the swimming pool. So, but you don't realize that because you're wet and you're in the water and it's, it's an arm. So yes, uh, the perception is you're cooler. But the reality is you're probably not. And that's why, as, a, as an operation, we take those 10-minute breaks, get people out of the water, out of the sun, and into the shade. The rising temperatures in the U.S. comes as a deadly heat wave continues in Europe. Since temperatures in southern Europe began to soar earlier this month, the heat wave has caused hundreds of deaths and sparked wildfires that have burned tens of thousands of acres of land in countries including Spain, Portugal and France. Now, while we usually think of flowers being pleasantly fragrant, that's not the case with this one unique tropical plant. And that very special bloom is often known as the corpse flower. NTD's David Lamb speaks to a greenhouse expert on the first of these flowers set to release its special scent into Silicon Valley. Lars Rosengreen, a greenhouse manager at San Jose State University, pays special attention to all of his plants. But he's paid particular attention to one very special species known as Titan Arum. Colloquially, it's the corpse flower. I'm 
very excited to see it see it open. It should be a really quite a show because it's I mean it's just it's big. It's cra it's crazy. <laughs> it's really exciting that um, it's blooming here at SJSU. Um, all the students who work up in the greenhouses are really excited uh, because it's kind of a culmination of all of their hard work, all the time we spend up here watering, repotting, um, and so it feels really great to be able to contribute this to the university. The plant has been growing at the school's biology department's greenhouse for nine years now and is expected to bloom for the first time in the coming days. And what will follow is the smell of a dead animal. That's according to Rosengreen, who says it will be a first in Silicon Valley. It attracts pollinators because the animals that pollinate this are carrion beetles. So carrion beetles are uh, beetles that lay their eggs on, on dead animals. And so this plant is basically tricking those beetles into thinking this is a large dead animal. Usually in the wild, if it becomes pollinated, a cherry-like fruit will develop down here, usually eaten by the hornbill bird. But if it's not pollinated, the whole thing kind of deflates. So this whole structure here, it's just held up by water. The school bought it as a seedling from a nursery in the North Bay and have tended to it ever since. They affectionately named it Terry Titan, based on its more official name, Titan Arum. They water it three times a week while maintaining a humid and warm environment above 65 degrees. Terry Titan stands about six feet tall. Now the greenhouse manager told us he started measuring it recently. Now based on this measuring stick, you can see exactly how fast it grew in the last two weeks. This plant weighed over a hundred pounds and the middle piece can get as warm as one's body temperature. According to the United States Botanic Garden, it's an endangered plant with an estimation of less than 1,000 remaining in the wild due to habitat loss. I've seen um, a few of these bloom before and it is quite the event because the smell just, it takes over the entire area. Um, I will definitely be coming back, uh, however, uh, I know I'm gonna have to plug my nose or something because it gets really bad. Once bloomed, it is the largest unbranched cluster of plants in the plant kingdom. It can grow up to around 10 feet tall. Terry Titan is expected to bloom late in the evening or early in the morning and can be watched on the SJSU Greenhouse Facility live stream. David Lamb, Entity News, California. And more on the natural world. For millennia, migratory monarch butterflies have transformed North American woodlands into kaleidoscopes of color during mass migrations. But now, international conservationists say they are threatened with extinction. Every autumn, migratory monarchs fly thousands of miles from breeding grounds in the eastern U.S. and Canada to spend the winter closely huddled in fir trees in Mexico and California. Numbering in the millions in the 1990s, the butterfly's population has since shrunk by more than 85 percent. On Wednesday, the monarchs were placed on the endangered category of the International Union for the Conservation of Nature's Red List of Threatened Species. What's happening to monarchs is like death by a thousand cuts. We know that over the past 30 years, monarch numbers have been declining at first really precipitously for about the first 15 years and then slower and with a lot of um, annual variation from year to year. Logging has destroyed much of the insects' winter grounds. Agricultural pesticides have decimated the milkweed plants that their larvae feed on. But as farmers change their weed control methods, 
that milkweed disappeared. And because much of the breeding range of monarchs is used for farming, um, a lot of that habitat is just gone now. Those corn and soybean fields that used to have used to have milkweed growing in them. Oberhauser added that the butterflies' numbers are closely tied to changes in weather. As we're seeing with um, all of the extreme weather events going on this year, um, there's also a change in the climate. And we know that monarchs are really tied, monarch numbers are really tied to variation in year-to-year -year weather, and that the conditions that are best for monarchs are becoming more rare. In all, the IUCN says more than 41,000 species are now at risk of going extinct. Wednesday's endangered species list includes all remaining species of sturgeon, following centuries of overfishing for their meat and caviar. Of the 26 sturgeon species, 17 are now considered critically endangered. The Red List update did provide some glimmers of hope. Tiger numbers increased 40% since the last assessment in 2015 due to improvements in monitoring with over 5,500 in the wild. However, some biologists have taken issue with how numbers are counted, saying such growth is misleading. Coming up, Ukraine and Russia have officially signed a deal to reopen Black Sea ports for grain exports, raising hopes of easing an international food crisis. And in the UK, patients are increasingly seeking private medical care in the wake of record high public health care backlogs of months or even years. That and more after this short break. A deal has been signed to allow Kyiv to resume its grain exports through the Black Sea. The United Nations hopes the deal will allow millions of tons of grain exports to relieve the risk of hunger in some parts of the world. Turkey will play the role of an inspector, while Russian grain and fertilizer shipments will also be eased. NTD's Eddie Aitken has more. A landmark deal has been signed in Istanbul on Friday to reopen Ukrainian Black Sea ports for grain exports raising hopes that an international food crisis aggravated by the Russian invasion can be eased. The United Nations has been working for over two months with NATO member Turkey to broker the deal. And let there be no doubt, this is an agreement for the world. It will bring relief for developing countries on the edge of bankruptcy and the most vulnerable people on the edge of famine. The UN expects the deal to be fully operational in a few weeks and restore shipments to pre-war levels of 5 million tons a month. Under the plan, Ukrainian officials will guide ships through safe channels across mined waters to three ports, including the major hub of Odessa, where they will be loaded with grain. Ships will then exit Ukrainian territorial waters in the Black Sea, transit the Bosphorus Strait to a Turkish port for inspection and later head to their destinations. A joint coordination centre will be established in Istanbul. The initiative we just signed opens a pass for significant volumes of commercial food exports from three key Ukrainian ports in the Black Sea, Odessa, Chebonorsk and Yuzhny. The shipment of grain and food stocks into world markets will help bridge the global food supply gap and reduce pressure on high prices. 
UN officials said the plan will be initially active for 120 days but will be renewable. The deal would also ease Russian grain and fertilizer shipments despite tough Western sanctions on Moscow. The commitment and dedication are even more vital today. This initiative must be fully implemented because the world so desperately needs it to tackle the global food crisis. We count on the government of Turkey to maintain its critical role going forward. And I am here to pledge the full commitment of the United Nations. It's reported that Kiev refused to sign a direct deal with Moscow, so they signed mirror deals. That means Ukraine signed the agreement with Turkey and the UN, while Russia signed an identical agreement. Russia and Ukraine are among the world's top food exporters, and Moscow's invasion has blockaded Ukrainian ports, stranding dozens of ships, leaving 20 million tons of grain stuck in silos and driving up world grain prices. Eddie Aitken, NTD News. And staying in Europe, the European Central Bank raised interest rates today for the first time in 11 years by a larger-than-expected amount, joining steps already taken by the U.S. Federal Reserve to target stubbornly high inflation. The most precious good that we can deliver and that we have to deliver is price stability. So we have to bring inflation down to 2% in the medium term. That is, uh, that is the imperative under the treaty, that is the strategy review objective that we have set for ourselves, and it's, it's, it's time to deliver. The central bank raised its benchmark deposit rate by 50 basis points to 0% for the 19-country euro bloc, ending an eight-year experiment with negative interest rates. The move brings up new questions about whether the rush to make credit more expensive will plunge major economies into recession at the cost of easing prices for people spending more on food, fuel and everything in between. The central bank's surprise hike is expected to be followed by another increase in September, possibly of another half a point. Policymakers also agreed to provide extra help to the Eurozone's more indebted nations, Italy among them, with a new bond purchase scheme. And in Germany, exploding energy costs are forcing municipalities to take action. A Bavarian city has embarked on a host of measures, from dimming streetlights to lowering the temperature in public's pools. NTD's John D. tells us more. Strolling through the Bavarian city of Augsburg at nighttime, something is different this summer. It's eerily dark and quiet. The facades of historic buildings are not illuminated, street lights are dimmed, and most of the fountains are not operating. Augsburg is among many cities around Germany to have rolled out a raft of energy-saving measures amid soaring oil and gas prices and record inflation. Mayor Eva Weber says the city's energy bills this year were expected to be almost double from last year. That was very important to me to show the people of Augsburg that we could be facing really hard times. Residents appear to support the city's efforts. I think it's a pretty good idea. It shows that the city is making an effort to save a little energy. I'm not sure how much it actually saves, but as a gesture, I think it's good to show people that it's possible to save energy during times like these. I'm sure everyone can make a contribution and save a little so that we can solve society's problems together. Like other cities, Augsburg wants to limit heating in public buildings. The city is also checking which traffic lights it can turn off. And it has also lowered the temperature in its outdoor public pools. 
Of course, the very biggest energy guzzlers are the swimming pools. The swimming pools as a whole account for about 10% of the city's energy needs. In response to uncertain gas supplies from Russia, the European Union told member states this week they need to cut gas usage by 15% until March, but that's an average. According to think tank Bruegel, Germany needs to cut its usage by 30% given its gas reliance. Germany's emergency plan prioritises gas for households and critical institutions like hospitals, whereas industry would be the first to face rationing. Around half of the German households rely on gas for their heating. Gas also accounts for a third of the industry's energy. In recent years, half of that gas has come from Russia. Across Germany, nervous citizens are stocking up on wood for fireplaces in reaction to rising prices and to brace for a worst-case scenario in the winter when temperatures can drop as low as minus 20 degrees Celsius. Germany's economy ministry is seeking to fill its gas caverns ahead of winter, when demand typically surges so that it could get by with those. Some cities are now planning on opening warm spaces where either the homeless or those who cannot afford heating can escape the winter cold. John D, NTD News. And in the UK, long waiting times for the National Health Service are leading patients to seek medical care in the private sector, with some seeking help through crowdfunding and taking out loans. It comes as an increasing number of people are being forced to wait months or even longer than a year just to start treatment due to backlogs related to the pandemic. This report comes from NTD's Malcolm Hudson. More people are choosing to pay for their own medical treatment rather than wait months to be seen by an NHS doctor. Figures from the Private Healthcare Information Network show that around 69,000 people paid for their own care in the last quarter of 2021, compared to nearly 50,000 during the same period in 2019. That's 39% more. In total, around 258,000 people paid for care last year, up from nearly 200,000 in 2019 an increase of 29%. Some of this increase is due to the pandemic shocking the medical system. Many people put off treatment and avoided going to hospital for fear of catching COVID. The backlog of patients waiting to start treatment in England has reached a record 6.6 million. Government ministers have warned it could be 2024 before the numbers start to drop. Around 2.5 million of these have to wait longer than four months with a portion waiting longer than a year. These times are too long for some patients. For common operations like knee and hip replacements, treatment can cost up to £15,000. Some patients are reportedly crowdfunding and taking out loans to pay for private treatment, while others are spending their savings. The government says good progress is being made on cutting the longest waiting times. A spokesperson for the Department of Health and Social Care said new surgical hubs and community diagnostic clinics are being set up to tackle the COVID backlogs. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News. Coming up, a startup company is designing an aircraft that can travel at twice the speed of today's planes and run on 100% sustainable aviation fuel. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News.
startup company Boom Supersonic is designing an aircraft dubbed the Son of Concorde. The Concorde was once the world's fastest passenger jet. The new airliner aims to travel at twice the speed of today's models and run on 100% sustainable aviation fuel. NTD's Earl Rhodes brings us more on this. When we started Overture and Boom Supersonic, we thought it was really critical because of some of the uh, perceptions of Concorde that came before us as an aircraft that, while beautiful in design and super fast, it was neither sustainable environmentally or economically. They aim to operate the aircraft at net zero carbon and run it on sustainable aviation fuel. And there are other upgrades from Concorde too, such as flying without afterburners, meaning a quieter experience for passengers, and a view of the stars, even during daylight, through the moonroof when cruising at 60,000 feet. The biggest luxury we have in life is time. It's the one thing we can't really buy readily. The company says Overture will cut the flight time from London to New York to just three and a half hours. Boom Supersonic was present at this year's Farnborough Air Show in Hampshire. Once built, Boom hopes Overture will make a maiden flight in 2026 with certification leading to commercial flights in 2029. Earl Rhodes, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.